1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. It says, For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all given one Spirit to drink. Indeed, the body is not one part, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged each one of the parts in the body just as he wanted. And if they were all the same part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we consider less honorable, we clothe these with greater honor. And our unrespectable parts are treated with greater respect, which our respectable parts do not need. Instead, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable, so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for each other. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word today, open our eyes to the wonders of it as we sing. Fill our eyes with the wonders of what you are, who you are, and what you've done. Lord, that we would see you more clearly so we'd love you more deeply and we'd walk with you more closely. Incline our ear to what you would say today. And I, Holy Spirit, I ask that you take the poverty of my remarks and translate them to each heart as we each one have need to hear from you today, to be encouraged by you today, to be built up by you today in our faith. And I thank you that you are faithful and able to do that and to accomplish it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have been, uh, I think for six weeks, on a little stretch talking about the body of Christ or the church, right? We, we go from a book of the Bible, uh, verse by verse, which we're going to get back to next week. We'll start our first Sunday in the book of Ephesians. Uh, so we'll be Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1. I'm looking forward to that. I've already been in there digging around. But before we got there, uh, the Lord just had it on my heart to spend some time teaching and thinking on the church. Uh, we have talked about how helpful and healthy it is to be an engaged part of the church, of the body of Christ. And, and, and we talked about it so much and it sounds so good. You know, the question comes up, why wouldn't you just everybody be a part of the church? Why, why wouldn't everybody just want to be a part of the church? And we hit that the, the very first week is that it can be difficult. It can be difficult to be a part of the church, to be a part of the body. I was having a conversation with one of our young people on Wednesday night, and they were dealing with some, some difficulties, not uncommon to young people. 
And you know, this, this is really hard. I don't understand why it's this hard. And I said, well, you know, you know that anything worth having is a little difficult. Anything that's worth obtaining requires a large amount of effort normally to get that thing. Being a part of the church is so worth it, but it's also difficult. And that's why you'll see people, I'll meet people, I'll talk to people, I'll get to minister to people in the community and they'll say, I'm going to be at church on Sunday. I'm going to start coming. This is time. I'm going to start coming. And then I never see them again. And the reason for that is they have a moment of inspiration. I want to do this. I can see it. I want to do it. But it's not followed. As soon as they meet difficulty, they go, oh, I didn't realize this was going to be difficult. I didn't realize I was going to have to like press. I didn't realize I was going to have to like push myself a little bit or or be any measure of discipline. And when, when they hit that, they go, oh, okay, well. Right. Because anything worth having is going to have some difficulty attached to it. And we talked about the value of the church and the definition of value that I use, that that I was taught, is benefits received over burdens endured. This is what it took me to get it. This is what I got. Everything above in, in between this area is value. And we, we do that when we're shopping for things, right? We go, well, how much does it cost? Well, it costs this. Well, I'm only going to get this much benefit out of it. Well, I'm not buying that. that. That's a negative for me. But if it costs this and I'm getting this much benefit out of it, that's a value, isn't it? It's going to cost me $5, but it would normally cost me $100. I'm going to get quite a bit of benefit out of this. I'm going to obviously take on this burden to get the benefit. But there is always a burden. There's always a burden there and, and, and we can run into that and we can tell ourselves one of two lies. And we've talked about the two lies that we can tell ourselves in regards to the church. The first lie is I don't need the church. I don't need the church. I just need my Bible and Jesus. I don't need the church. That's the first lie. And it is a lie because you do need the church. Again, the my Bible and Jesus conversation. How did you get those? Those only came to you because of the church. Unless an angel came down from heaven and set it in your lap and told you everything you needed to know, it came to you through the church. Don't tell me you don't need what got you to where you are. It's just not a healthy thing to believe that lie that I don't need the church. And then the other lie is, well, the church doesn't need me. What good does the church have for me? I'm nothing but a drag. I'm nothing but a drain. I'm nothing but a problem. We, we tell ourselves that. And you saw there in the, in the text, it said, just because the foot says, I'm, I'm not a part of the body, I don't fit in, doesn't make it for that reason any less a part of the body. But God put every part in the position and the place that he wanted it to be to bless the whole body. So we don't believe the lie that we don't need the church. And we don't believe the lie that the church doesn't need us. We looked over into the way that Jesus sees the church in the book of Ephesians. We saw some, uh, uh, some description there in Ephesians 5 and verse 22 where, you know, we usually go to it to learn about marriage. But it also teaches us much and more about Christ and the church. It says there that Jesus is the head and the authority of the church. That he's the savior of the body, the savior of 
the church. Paul would tell the Ephesians, Husbands, love your wives as what? As Christ loves the church and gave himself for her. It said he gave himself for her, the church, in order to make her, the church, holy. Make her holy and cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. And it tells us in Ephesians why it was that he did this. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or without wrinkle. And I love the way the CSB puts it. Without spot or without wrinkle or anything like that. No spot or wrinkle, no blemish, no impurity, no imperfection, and no wrinkle. This is an ageless and eternal relationship. He's not going to look on her and go, you're looking a little long in the tooth. I think it's about time for me to swap you out. He presents her, the church, to himself as a bride without spot, without wrinkle, so that she can be holy and blameless. That's what Jesus sees when he sees the church. That's what he thinks of when he thinks about the church. And because of that, he cares for the church. As it says, as one would his own body. It tells that to the husband. It says, treat your wife like she is a part of your own body because that's what Christ does with the church. That's what he sees when he sees the church. That's what he thinks about when he thinks about the church. And so we ask the question, what is it that you see when you look at the church? What is it that comes to your mind when you think about the church? And are we seeing that by faith or is that view that we have of the church coming from somewhere else? Where is it coming from? We've talked about faith. Faith is seen as God sees. It's a divine gift imparted to us from him so that we can see him more clearly. And we can see what he's doing in our lives and in the world. What is it that's driving that view? I've told you, I've quoted it over and over. Uh, the principle of the most important thing about you is what comes to mind when you think about God. That's the most important thing about you. Nothing else is more important because what comes to mind when you think about God tells me how you understand him, how you relate to him, how you've received him, the authority he has in your life. It lines all of that out. That's why it's the most important thing about you. And this second question is like unto it. What comes to your mind when you think about the church? And I encouraged you to think about it the way that Barnabas saw it in Acts chapter 11. Remember, we read the story in Acts 11 where some Jews had gone out from Jerusalem because of the persecution that was arising because of the message of Jesus that was being preached. And they came to Antioch. And at first they only talked to other Jews about the message of Jesus. But some of them who spoke Greek say, we're going to start talking to these Greek folks, too. We're going to tell them about Jesus. And they began to believe and turn to the Lord and their lives were being changed and a church is being formed there in Antioch and things are happening. Good things are taking place so much so that the news made it all the way back to Jerusalem, to the saints there, the first church of Jerusalem, made it back to them. 
And they said, Barnabas, you go. Son of encouragement, that's what his name meant. You go and see what's going on and see how it is that we can help. And it said, when he arrived, he saw the grace of God. When he saw the church, the gathering at Antioch, it said when he arrived, he saw the grace of God and he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. He, it says he saw the grace of God. He would have had to have seen it in action amongst the people, right? The grace of God isn't a tangible thing itself that you can see, but you can see the effects of it in the lives of people and in a community. He saw the message of Jesus saving people, changing lives, and what the gospel does, it saves us individually and it joins us together corporately as the church. So he sees this happening individually on an individual level and a holistic level in the community. He must have seen the grace in their relationships with one another, their interactions with one another. He must have seen it as a part of the church and a part of the gathering because they were then, just like in Jerusalem, just like now, regularly gathering together as the body of Christ. What is it that comes to mind when we think about the church? What do we see? We want to see the way that Barnabas saw it in Antioch. We want to see the grace of God in action. And I've encouraged you, when you think of the church, to think of it as a table of fellowship. It's a table of fellowship, like a a family Thanksgiving dinner table, like a good family's table. Because good things can happen at the table. Again, no one has ever said that it's a bad idea for families, good families, to sit down and have dinner together, to put the phones away, devices away, turn the TV off, and everybody sit down at the table together. Nobody has ever said that's a bad idea. Everybody has continued to say for generations that that is a good idea and something helpful and healthy for us to do. Why? Because good things happen at the table. And we talked about the good things that can happen at that family table, the table of fellowship. First is that we're welcomed. We're welcomed. We have a place. We have some belonging there as a part of the body of Christ, just like we do as a part of that family. Not because of what we've done, but because of what we're a part of in Christ. And another thing that happens at the table is that's when you learn and receive your identity. You know, we've gotten the idea in our culture that identity is gained by looking into yourself, just navel gazing for a long period of time. And I just need to discover myself. I just need to find myself. I just need to find out who I am and who I'm supposed to be. That always goes poorly. Because if you're the problem, more of you is not the answer. Identity is conveyed from someone who's above you in authority over you and then received by you. 
That's where you get your identity from. And you see that at the table, the family table from one generation to the next. How many of you came up understanding who you were and who you were a part of because you sat down at the table with mom and dad and with grandma and grandpa and you started to see you were a part of something that was bigger than yourself and you had a place at the table that you didn't deserve, but they set up for you anyway because of who you were, what you were a part of, not anything you had done. We're welcome because of our identity and we receive our identity at the table. The church is the same way. We're welcome as a part of the body of Christ. We receive our identity from him. It's conveyed to us from the father. We get in the word, we get around the body. We learn who it is that we are in Christ and that everything starts to make more sense. I was thinking on this and we've got a cousin, little cousin, not little anymore, but he's young. He's about Abby's age. Um, named Griffin. And I remember when Griffin was little, he's the son of my double first cousin. I could explain to you how that worked, but I promise it was all legal and nothing weird about it. So whatever that makes us, the first cousin once removed, I don't know how that works, but we're cousins. And Griffin and his dad and his mom, they lived in up around Little Rock. And I'll tell you one thing about Little Rock, there's nobody up there in the last name word. Don't know why. We got a bunch of them around here. Uh, we're not kin to most of them. We don't see them at Christmas. We've got different sets, but there, there's nobody up there. And so Griffin's going to school and he's learning to, learning to write his name. And uh, I think somebody might have picked on him a little bit. Our last name's a little bit weird. People don't think it's a real last name. For somebody's last name to be word, they're like, you serious? Is that true? Anyway, so I think he, he, he was kind of feeling a little bit low about his last name. Nobody else around here has that last name. Just me and mom and daddy, nobody else. And at school, it doesn't seem to make sense to people. And he just felt a little bit like he didn't belong. And then we were sitting at, I think it was after Christmas dinner. We're all circled up in my grandmother's living room there in Bearden. And he's sitting on the floor and everybody's visiting. We're, like I said, just lined up around the wall. You know, however many of us there are. There's a bunch of us plus our cousins. And, you know, so there's 20, 25 people in this little room. And uh, my uncle's standing over in the doorway and he said, Griffin, why don't you go around the room and ask everybody what their last name is? And he's like, what do you want me to do that for? He said, just go around the room. And ask everybody what their last name is. And he was young enough then that he did it. You know, he was probably, again, you know, six, seven, maybe. And he started asking everybody in the room, what's your last name? Word. What's your last name? Word. And on each person, what's your last name? Word. And I'm watching his face as he's doing this. And he's just lighting up. Because he realized he was a part of something that he didn't realize he was a part of. That there were more people that that were his people. He's like, this is what I'm a part of. I felt like I don't belong. I felt like I don't fit in. And then wait, wait a second. Y'all all have the same last name that I do. And so he felt that welcome and he felt that identity around the family table. And we gain that. Here We gain that as a part of the body of Christ. Not just our gathering here, but, but the, the church universal. You can find brothers and sisters around the world. Who, who, whom do you serve? I serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Who do you run with? I run with King Jesus. 
and you find that place and that belonging and you realize that you're a part of something bigger and you're no longer othered like you felt like you were, but, but you have an understanding that I am received. I am welcomed. I'm a part of something. Again, I'll never forget that look on his face. You should have seen it. We find that together at the table, that welcome, that identity. And the next thing they found there, Barnabas, after he had seen that in Antioch, and after he had encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts, encouraging all of them to do that, it says he left to go search out Saul of Tarsus and bring him back to Antioch. And he did. And then they taught for over a year. They lived there with the people and taught them for over a year. And we talked about how the, the church, the body of Christ, that there's a teaching and a training and an understanding that we gain as a part of the body that we would otherwise miss. We didn't always know what it is that we know now. And we don't yet know all that we need to know about God, about this life, about how it Works, And that's another function of the church, another function of the table of fellowship. So much of what we do know that's good for us and right for us, we would not have known if it wasn't for the church. Scripture says that the people can perish for a lack of knowledge, for a lack of understanding. So there's a teaching and a training, and it's not just information. It's not just an exchange of information because we have, again, more information available now than we ever have had in the history of the world. And things aren't better, are they? Not as much better as the amount of information that we've gained. I shouldn't say things aren't better. Things have improved because of the common grace of knowledge and wisdom that's able to be disseminated. But for all that is available on an individual basis... Our mental health is what? Worse. Why? Because information is only part of the equation. It has to be accompanied by relationship. It has to be coupled with relationship. There's information shared, but it has to be uh, there coupled with relationship. And that's why you see Paul and Barnabas. They went to Antioch and they stayed there. They lived with them for over a year, teaching, walking with them encouraging them, building them up. And Saul, also we call Paul, he wasn't the kind of preacher or teacher who just told people what they wanted to hear, was he? No. He would stick with them and build a relationship with them and he would tell them the truth in love when they needed to hear it, even if it was something that would grieve them even if it was something that would upset them. We talked about that last week in 2 Corinthians when he said, if I grieved you with my letter, 1 Corinthians, I don't regret it. He said, I don't feel bad about it. And even if I did feel bad about it, I wouldn't have felt bad about it very long. I'd instead start rejoicing. Why? Because it produced in you, it grieved you as God willed it to do, so that you would repent, change the way that you think, and find salvation. He said, this isn't a worldly grief that produces death. This is a godly grief that produces repentance and salvation without regret. 
And again, there is not a no grief option. I wish there was. There's not one. Grief is the price that we pay for love. It's the price that we pay for relationship. If you're in relationship with me in any, in any context, there's going to be a time where I grieve you. It's going to happen. Right? It's going to happen. But to not walk in relationship at all seems safer at first. But to walk alone is the most grievous thing that we can do. He said there's a godly grief that leads to repentance and salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. We talked about how there can be a good grief. Again, it's difficult to be a part of the body. There are things that are going to grieve us. We don't like to be confronted by the truth when it's contrary to what we've been thinking or what it is that we've been doing. We do not like that. It grieves us. But when it's delivered by someone who we know loves us, who we know is for us, who is one of our ride or die people in this life, it leads us to what? Change our mind and change the way that we think. Scripture says there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is death. But it also says in the multitude of counsel, there's safety. That's what we have in the body. We're not alone. If I'm alone, what seems right to me can lead me to death. But in a multitude of counsel, when I have people around me that I know are with me, that I know are for me, that I know will stick with me through difficulty and trial, then I can receive truth from them and encouragement. Even if it grieves me, even if it confronts me, it can lead me to repentance, changing the way that I think and salvation, not death. We don't want to be someone who it's said of, well, you know, he won't listen. You know, he's not going to, he never listens when he gets like this. We don't want to be somebody like that. We don't want to be somebody who it's said of, well, she needs to hear it, but I don't know who she'll hear it from. She won't, she won't, you've heard that before. She needs to hear it, but I know she won't hear it from me. What are they saying? If I tell, if I tell them this, they won't listen. We don't want to be that away. We don't want it to be said of us that we're that away. Instead, what we want to do is invest in the relationships that God has given us in the body. We want to engage with the body of Christ to remain connected with the body of Christ. Because in that there's safety in troubled times. I read to you out of Psalm 94. Where he said, blessed is the one who you teach. Blessed is the one, Lord, whom you discipline to bring relief during difficult times. That the discipline of the Lord will actually bring relief when times get difficult. God Almighty himself created, cares for, and works through his church. He did it. He holds it up. He keeps it going and he works through it. As we saw there, as we read this morning in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, you are the body of Christ and individual members in it. It Tells us that the body isn't just one part, but many. We're diverse. We don't lose our differences or our uniqueness, But he purifies them and aligns them together to make us stronger than we ever could be alone. 
We're not the same, but we're similar. And that's why we don't compare ourselves one to another. We always compare ourselves to Christ. We are diverse and it's a blessing. Can you imagine? I thought about this. Sitting down at a table with 12 other versions of you. Me sitting down with 11 other Stevens at the table. That wouldn't be good at all. Just even just anything about it. Man, did I tell you all about the time? We were there, buddy. It's just, well, I think this. We know we all think that. If more than one of you are the same, then one of you is unnecessary. He made us different for a reason. We wouldn't like it if we were all the same. Our difference is great on one another. That's what differences do. Try getting married. (laughs) They're great on one another, but I don't want to make my wife like me. I mean, I want to make her like me, but I don't want to make her like me. Right? I don't want to take the things that make her her and turn her into me. Because the parts of her that are different from me are necessary to walk together with me and be my help and my strength. We're diverse. We don't lose those differences, but he aligns them. Just like the physical body. It said if the whole body were an eye, where would hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, how would we smell anything? There's going to be differences there. And that gets us back into the two lies, you know, that I don't need the body. The body doesn't need me. We're all needed in the body because he designed it that way. Though we're different. What did it say? Verse 21. Each part is vital that I can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On, con- on contrary, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable. The weaker parts, you know, we can sometimes think, well, I'm not getting, I'm not a help at all. I'm a weaker part of the body. He says that those are indispensable. He's given a vision of our our vital organs, right? You know, your vital organs, while they're vital, they're not very hardy. That's why they're inside, sealed up. Well, they don't get exposed to anything. They're not very durable on their own. That's why they're covered and that's why they're protected. In the body of Christ, in the church, God works in our diversity even through or in spite of our weaknesses. And just like those parts of our body that we can't see, He works in the unseen. He says the less honorable parts of the body are clothed with honor. But just like in the body, when we gather with the church, when we engage, there are things going on that you can't see. There's things going on in my physical body right now. You can't see, I can't see them, but they are taking place and they're important. There are things that you can't measure, at least not without, you know, a whole lot of expensive equipment. And there's certainly things that you can't substitute for. He is working in the unseen. You can be connected for a little while. I'm like, I'm just not noticing any progress. I'm just not seeing any change. By the time you notice progress and you see change, change has already been happening and progress has already been happening for a while. For a while, just like anytime you go on a health journey or if you want to start, you know, going to the gym, you know, with a personal trainer like Aaron, you're not going to notice anything good for a little while, are you, Aaron? It's just going to be pain. It's just going to be difficulty. And by the time you start to see change, change has been happening the whole time. You just haven't been able to notice it. It's been in the unseen. 
He works in the unseen before things are seen. See, because you don't have, you can look, you can check, you don't have gauges on you to show what's high and what's low, what's full and what's empty, but you do have those levels. And we need to understand that. We need to understand that. Because again, I can't see my stomach. I can't see it working. It's unseen. But it really affects everything that I do. Really has a part in what's going on in my body. There's so much to the health of our body that's an unseen operation. And it's the same way with the church, with the body of Christ. If you just look on somebody, an individual from the outside, you have no clue what all is taking place, what all is processing, what all the energy is being converted into this so that this can be converted into that and that this can be filtered out because of this. And all of that's going on and you can't see it and we take it for granted and we can do the same thing with the church. And so what I'm encouraging you in is when you don't see progress, understand that doesn't mean progress isn't happening. He's doing things you hadn't even yet figured out that he's doing. He's working on you in ways that you haven't even yet seen and that he's not yet revealed. But that doesn't mean he's not at work and active. The more you come, the more you hear, the more you engage, the more you love, the more you participate, the more you give, the more you learn, the more you receive. Something is happening in you that's going to produce a long term result that you will not be able to ignore. That will be obvious. And here's the kicker, and we're, we're almost done. Barnabas, who it said was full of faith in the Holy Spirit, full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, when he arrived and saw that church and he saw the grace of God, what did he encourage them with? He said, remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. Or, In other words, whatever you do, don't stop what it is that you're doing. You have no idea how precious this is. You have no idea how important this is. You have no idea how powerful this is, how vital this is in your life and in the life of this community here in Antioch. He said, remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. That's an everyday faithfulness. Again, we can despise those everyday activities, those those everyday uh, exercises in faithfulness and godliness. We start to go, well, is that really doing anything? It was just a little bit. It was just a little bit yesterday. It's just a little bit today. But as we're faithful, you can think of it as planting and watering. You can think of it as, you know, the gym example where I continue to, to, to just show up every day and do what it is that I'm supposed to do and not notice any measurable change from one day to the next. Like when I plant a crop, I don't notice any noticeable change most of the time from one day to the next. But from one season to the next, it is huge. And he's encouraging them. What Paul would encourage the Galatians to do is don't grow weary in doing good. Because it'll produce a harvest that you will bring in if what? If you don't lose heart. We don't want to lose heart in this. And and I'll leave you with a, a quote. Charles Spurgeon, it's one of my favorite quotes about the church. He said, if I never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, 
I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I would have spoiled it, for it would not have been perfect after I had become a member of it. He said, still, imperfect as it is, the church, still imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. Don't look for it to be perfect. Don't look for the people to be perfect. They won't be. But what we want to be is welcoming, conveying that identity of Jesus Christ and continuing over and over, knowing that he's working in the unseen. I I deal in the seen. He deals in the unseen. All he's asking me to do is be obedient in the same direction over a long period of time and to watch what it is that he'll do. We don't say to one part or the other, I don't need you. You don't need me. All this thing is just a big old. No, it's not. It is the dearest place on earth to us. Now, we are the body of Christ and individual members in it. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this time on looking at the church, thinking on the church. Lord, forgive us when we've taken her for granted. The body that you've put us in, that you've made us a part of, that you've welcomed us into, that you've made a part of our identity. Lord, we can receive so much from her. I pray that you will help us to stay engaged, to stay in contact, to stay in our spot in the body. And watch what you'll do. Lord, to not compare ourselves one to another. We're diverse. We're different. We're going to be different. But we can be together in Christ Jesus. You're big enough to join us together in a beautiful unity and harmony that couldn't be achieved by anybody anywhere else. Only you. You created this. You sustain it. And you use it for your glory and for our good. We thank you for the church. We thank you for the church universal across the world, that there's brothers and sisters that we have with that, looks like the story, with that same last name, with that same family identity, that we'd be welcome at their table and they'd be welcome at ours. Lord, what you've done, taking this small group of men and women in Jerusalem, less less than a couple hundred, and building something that spans across the entire globe. It's awesome what you've done. Thank you for working in the unseen. Thank you for working in the ordinary. And thank you for working in us. Thank you that though you've called us to follow you, you've not called us to do it alone. And we say thank you for that. Lord, that you would help us to see the church as Barnabas saw it, full of grace. And that we in that, seeing that would be encouraged to continue devoted to you with true hearts. And watch what you'll do in our lives, in the tables that we sit down to, and all that you'll bring and join together with us. Lord, I know you're not yet done bringing people into the family. I thank you that there's family members out there that we haven't yet met that you're going to bring into the body of Christ. Through our ministry, through the love and commitment that we have to our community, and through your goodness and, oh my goodness, by your grace. I thank you for all that you've done. I thank you for what you've yet to do and that we're going to see it more clearly and worship you. As we get ready to go today, I thank you that we leave in peace and unity with one another. 
Keep us safe as we leave from here today. I thank you as we go through this week, we do so with you in mind, that we'll engage with your word. We'll meet you in prayer. We'll bring our needs to you before we take them to anybody else. And Lord, that we'll remember to look up and see all the promises that are yet out in front of us that you've told us about that we're not yet walking in. I thank you that we'll see them. We'll wave at them. And it'll give us endurance for the day. We love you and we thank you. Lord, be with those who are out from us traveling, sick or working. I thank you that you bless them and keep them. Make your face to shine upon them and give them peace. Lord, I thank you for being a part of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.